Okay. Um, everyone has a handout? No? They should be right outside. Um, and actually, the handouts today, um, you'll see, I basically just made a chart so that if you want to even follow along in the chart as you go and write up to Kim that Carly. Um, ah, a couple of things before we start that I wrote down I need to, to announce. Okay, not announce, but say. First of all, um, I, I want to thank you all for ruining my zen on Friday. I was in, I was, it's actually a ridiculous example, but I was in a yoga class and the teacher used the word mifrak. And instead of being in the flow and being in the moment, of course, I say, oh my gosh, mifrak, which is a joint, right? Mifrak kapaya, mifrak kapregel. I said, I said, oh my gosh, I forgot to mention mifrak in Hebrew. If you remember last week, we were talking about the root ra, right, for arthritis or art or uh, articulate. We said it means to joint and that everything is about jointing and disjointing. So mifrak, which is a joint, so if, you're, if you want to say to take something apart, if you have movers coming and they ask if you need to take apart furniture to move it, lefaret, right? So even in Hebrew, which is a Semitic, not originally a Latin language, the same concept of joints being those things that joint things together and then in order to take them apart. So there you go. You ruined my zen, but I, I forgot to mention that in Hebrew it works perfectly awesome. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention, because I realized we forgot we ended the class with mentioning Shimon and Levi and the deception of Shimon and Levi as being sort of an extension of the trickster archetype that we were talking about and how in order, right, we said sort of the flip side of the trickster taking up the last two classes, uh, moving beyond the negative element of deception and sort of having to do things through subterfuge was the flip side, which is that the trickster is also the one that is able to take apart, to disjoint society and the things that are wrong with it in order to re-articulate it, right? To put it together, I just started, don't worry. Um, to put things together again and build a new society. We talked all about how Yaakov was that. Um, and then we finished with the Shimon and Levi example. And I said how once again, Shimon and Levi used, for example, Brit Milah, which is the joint, right? That thing, which is the boundary between Israel and non-Israel. And they sort of gave this illusion, right, ma through trickery, that if only the people of Shrem do a Brit Milah, then they can cross over. Um, and we use that as sort of, but of course, they use the joint or the boundary to, to sort of trick them and to actually maintain that boundary. What we forgot, or what I forgot to mention, um, and I'm mentioning her because we're not really going to be spending a lot of time today on Yehuda and Tamar, uh, primarily because I did it in my women's course a bunch of years ago, so I don't want to be too repetitive, but Tamar is also perhaps the greatest example in Breshit of this trickster archetype, right? Someone who resorts to subterfuge, and for those of you who actually can jog your memory and remember what we talked about with women, um, the need to sort of resort to subterfuge because they don't have any authority in that given dynamic. But her subterfuge, really what she is able to do, in essence, is create a new society where Yaakov has it, where Yehuda primarily has a realization that you can't prioritize one child over another. Right? You cannot prioritize, in his case, he was prior that case he was prioritizing Shate, excuse me, Shayla, right, over the progeny that should have been named for Er and Ona. And what Tamar is able, when he does this tzadkami many, what he is able to acknowledge is that you cannot prioritize one child over another regardless of what you feel, regardless of what you imagine is going to be. And it's only that realization of Yehuda that enables him to then go back to Yosef, when you, uh, to, yeah, excuse me, to Yaakov, 
when he wants to set, when he doesn't want to send Binyamin down, and Yehuda actually is the only one that has sort of the authority because he can be empathic and say, I understand you want to save the life of one child, but if it's at the expense of everyone else, you just can't do that. So Tamar's very deception is almost what undoes everything that came before it in terms of prioritizing, and it's only from there that we're able to then move on and become the 12 Shvatim. So tiny tangent that I remembered I needed to mention. Um, and again, Tamar's story in and of itself is, is just fascinating, fascinating. Okay. So we are about to actually, we're going to be ending, um, we're going to be closing up Safer Breeze Sheet today uh, and moving on next week really to the topic of, we're not going to be doing the details of Yitzhak Mitzrayim, but conceptually we're going to be thinking it's sort of at, in, in a more broadly conceived way. Um, but what I want to talk about a little bit now is just finishing up with one of the longest ongoing narratives in Tanakh about any individual, which is the story of Yosef. Mechirat Yosef and then everything it leads to till the end of Safer Breeze Sheet. Now, um, one of the things which is really interesting, and for those of you that were in the Daniel class last year, we talked about how Yosef becomes the paradigm of a diaspora Jew, or a Jew in exile, or a, you know, the court Jew, right? He becomes the paradigm for all of those models that emerge later on. Because essentially, within the biblical period, we experience three different geopolitical realities, okay? We are either in our own land, right, under our own rule, which is, for example, the period of kings, or shokim, or not so much shokim. We can be in our own land under foreign rule, so for example, the Persian and the Greek periods, right, or we can be in a foreign land under foreign rule. So for all of those geopolitical reality, or political realities, so to speak, we have a paradigm for each one, sometimes more than one. Yosef is the paradigmatic Jew in exile, so to speak. And one of the things that we mentioned last year in the Esther Daniel course is the way in which both Nidilat Esther and Sefer Daniel almost <coughs> reconstruct the Yosef story. They draw lots of motifs, right? The clothing and the clothing, and the king and the king and the courtier. They draw lots of motifs, but then almost in some cases, so for example, in Daniel's case, they almost sanitize it, right? In Esther's case, they revise it for a different reality. But Yosef is that paradigm. Okay? So that's something that's important to know. And of course, it's also fascinating to see how Yosef emerges in the Midrashim. Right? Either he's Yosef HaTzadik, who, who didn't succumb to the pressures, for example, of Eshet Potiphar, or in other cases, his bones, for example, right? the bones of, um, that were in the coffin that they brought out into Egypt is what they threw into make the Egel Hazahat. Right? Why to turn into a calf? So because Ben Porat Yosef, they threw in the, the little amulet that was attached to his bones. So even in Midrash, right, which is, is pretty intuitive, Yosef sort of takes on all of these different elements to represent what we're trying to look for in the text. What I want to do is something more in line with the way we've been teaching the course until now, um, and look at Yosef as an, an archetype. Look at what he represents, and look at his journey, really, as this archetypal journey that we're gonna, that we're gonna be looking, that we're gonna be sort of paying attention to. Now, I will say this until, probably until the very last day of the class, but I can't stress enough how important this is. I think I've said it every single day so far. Okay, and I'm putting it up here again because I think it is so, so critical. I think that one of the challenges of learning Tanakh in the sort of manner that we're doing it, certainly for people who have never been exposed to sort of what we would call comparative <laughs> religions or anthropology or comparative mythology, 
is that it almost, it, it sort of creates this inner unrest. Well, how could it be, right? We're, it almost feels like we're comparing Tanakh to all the other literature, all the other mythology out there, and then takes away from what we believe to be the specialness and the divine nature of Tanakh. And so I really cannot stress enough the notion of Dibrat Torah Kilshon Gamei Adam, right? We don't believe that Torah is truth because of the packaging it comes in, because of the mythology that it sort of adheres to, or because of the way that the stories fit archetypes. That's the packaging. That's Dibrat Torah Kilshon Gamei Adam. Hashem was speaking to human beings, Hashem was speaking to people that were the product of a real environment. And so he spoke to us, right, if we're going to invoke Carl Jung, in the way that the human brain understands and interprets patterns and behaviors in this world. Okay, so the fact that it looks similar to other packaging is not what bothers us, because humanity across the board is the same. What our job as students of Tanakh and students of Torah is to be able to, first step, is to look at the packaging, to understand what is this packaging that I'm looking at, to sort of decode it, and only then can we get to the second level, which is, well, if the Torah is divine and Hashem gave us these eternal truths, how, what are the truths that are embedded in all of this packaging? Okay, so it's really, really important, and I can't stress enough how sort of critical it is to understand that. If we're looking, <coughs> we're saying Tanakh is truth because it's different, then we're going to be very disappointed if we look at ancient Near Eastern law codes and ancient Near Eastern culture and mythology from across the world. We don't believe the Torah is truth because it's different or original in some of these stories or motifs. We believe Tanakh is truth because we believe Hashem gave it to us. Okay, so that's a really, really important distinction. And again, in order, I believe, to understand the truth beneath those layers of packaging, we need to first unpackage and understand what we're looking at. So again, sorry if that's a really, really uh, repetitive intro, but I, I, I think it's so, so important to understand. Okay, that being said, one of the um, really, really interesting archetypes that we're going to take a look at today is what Joseph Campbell, who is a 20th century scholar, expert in mythology. None of this will come as a surprise. I'm sticking his name up on the board in this course. Um, what Joseph Campbell calls the hero's journey. Okay? And the hero's journey is really, really fascinating. Um, and essentially what he does is very similar to what we looked at with Carl Jung, although with a slightly less psychological bent, is those overlapping right, sort of structures in terms of journeys of heroes, of the protagonists in so many, or almost every, really, story. So what I'm going to do, what I did here today, is I made a chart. I'm going to intro what each stage is according to Joseph Campbell, and then we're going to look back in Sheep and see how Yosef's story parallels, and then, of course, see what the story is trying to tell us. Okay, so basically, the hero's journey, yes? Yeah. I don't. They they're should be they're outside, they're though. They're outside. Thank you, sorry. Yes, the Brakarak Kilshon Benei Adam, but Lashon. It's not Kilshon, it's Kilshon. I think it's Kilshon. Which is actually interesting. I never thought of that distinction. I have to read that. I think it's Kilshon, actually. I'll double check. I mean, now that I made a big stink and put it on the board, I probably know which letter. Where is that? Where is that found? There's different variations of this concept, right? I keep meaning there's also, you know, Dibera Katuv Behov. There's lots of different Chazal discussing in different manifestations. Again, sometimes even when Chazal talk about it, it's in a much more literal context, right? Uh, why are they giving this example of this specific law? Because Torah speaks about, you know, or. Um, 
I'm trying to think of the other example where I recently just went through. Yeah, just yeah. the of HaKadosh Baruch that sound like they're human. Yeah, but think about so what you're... That's, and that's that we can understand. Correct. So, but what you're saying is one example of a much broader phenomenon. Right, right. Right? To right. do, when we talk in anthropomorphic terms, which is saying God has, you know, an angry nose or a long arm, what we're doing is we are anthropomorphizing this transcendent concept that we can't understand unless we speak about him in human terminology, right? So that's just one example of how we create patterns and how we create meaning and how we speak about esoteric concepts. And it's no different than what we're going to talk about today with the hero's journey. It's no different than the trickster, right? All of this, if we're thinking in more broad terms, yes, 100%, it's probably, it, I, I imagine, um, one of the times it's mentioned would be in terms of, you know, well, we say Haron Ach Hashem, that's not literal, of course, Hashem. But again, if we take a step back, what it's really saying is, Kilshon B'nei Adam, meaning it speaks to the limitations of the human mind, right? The abilities and the limitations of the human mind. That's why even though Hashem doesn't actually have a body, we use bodily terminology to speak about him. We'll use terminology when we get to the, into the topic, for example, of the Mikdash or the Mishkan. So we're going to use terminology like Tum'ah and Tahara to express something that's, that's almost esoteric, right? But we're going to use terminology so we can make sense of what we're dealing with. Okay? It's Kilishan. It's Kilishan. It is, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Thank God for Google. Otherwise, I would have had to erase that on the whiteboard, and that would have been a real big Okay. Sahariya, I found two quotes, Ramban and Rashi. Okay. I figure I could trust them. Thank you. Okay. There you go. If, 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 if ever in doubt, just look up in the uh, Halo Gaspari. Okay. Um, now, the hero's arc. What's fascinating about this hero's journey that we're really, that we're going to be looking at today. The hero's arc oftentimes, now what I'm going to be doing today, again, Lahabdil Elif al but because images stay in our minds, I'm going to be referring to lots of movies that I imagine many of you are familiar with. Just because images, right, scenes that are conjured up in Hollywood or in cinema or in books, sometimes make what we're going to be talking about in the theoretical much more real. Okay, and I also need to apologize off the bat because I never read Harry Potter and I don't remember Star Wars at all. So you can throw rotten tomatoes in the after, but I really have no clue what it is. So those would be the obvious hero's journeys. I know I apologize. Um, it's not really in many circles, but okay. So one of the things that's really, really fascinating, and essentially the hero's arc is as follows. Okay, the broad overview is you begin with a normal, routine individual who's sort of living their life, right? You have in the beginning the ordinary world. The ordinary world is that scene in the movie where the person is either in their suit and tie and going to work and sitting in a cubicle every day and coming home at five o'clock and eating the same dinner. And, or living in the suburbs where all the grass is perfectly right groomed and everyone leaves the house at 8 o'clock in the morning and everyone comes home at 4 p.m. and sort of that humdrum, run-of-the-mill, ordinary world, okay? <coughs> Nothing exciting is happening, but, okay, what's beautiful about this world, we're going to see, is that there is that big famous word, order, okay? Because you know what to expect and everything is ordered. And the rules are understood and the hierarchies, whether or not you like them, they're understood and they're accepted as givens, okay? And then, of course, by the way, I'll use, I'm going to keep going back to, um, to Wizard of Oz just because I think the contrast between the black and white of Kansas and the color of Oz, right, is perhaps one of the most brilliant ways of depicting this difference between the ordinary and then this sort of, not supernatural, but special. What? Fantasy. 
Um, so not so much fantasy. Well, we'll see. We'll see. I, I think it's less fantasy, more the place where change can happen, right? Where you can break out of the humdrum. Okay. You have a call to an adventure. Every hero begins as the regular Joe Schmo, but then there's somehow, bless you, a call to adventure. Now, a call to adventure can manifest in lots of different ways. It could be a mysterious phone call where someone just mumbles something into the phone and you're sort of enticed to go follow it. But of course, again, if the character is enticed to follow some random phone call he receives at work, we have to ask what was wrong with his everyday, right? Sometimes it could be a letter they receive in the mail, something someone says right before they die, right? The grandmother, as she's dying, gives over this beautiful, right, sort of secret that the granddaughter now has to follow. Um, oftentimes, we're going to see this is the case with Yosef. It's not in the hero's control. It's not always that the hero wakes up one morning and decides, I want more, I want better. Sometimes life throws curveballs or life creates scenarios where suddenly the hero finds himself in a completely different universe and what he does and how he responds to that new universe, and of course that's going to be the Yosef case, is what, ha is what, what the story really becomes. Okay, refusal to the call. We do not have to go beyond Tanakh, right? I don't even have to go to Hollywood to know that one of the pivotal moments in every hero's life, start with Moshe, go to Yirmiyahu, go to Amos, go to Yishe, is the refusal to the call, right? Now, where does the refusal come from? Oftentimes, it's humility, right? Or, or feeling just not up to the test, right? It's not humility in the sort of, you know, the in the, you know, the platitudes, oh, no, not me. It's, it's legitimately not to believe, right? Clad pe, clad lashon, I cannot be in order, right? A lack of confidence. Lack of confidence, certainly. Okay, oftentimes it also comes from a place where the person doesn't want to shake things up, right? Where the order is more, is optimal over the chaos that they know will ensue if they, right, leave their job, find, move to, whatever the case may be. Okay, chaos is very threatening, chaos is terrifying, and so more often than not, the call is refused. Now, we're going to see in the Yosef story, for example, the refusal to the call isn't always internal. How else could there be a refusal to the call? Correct, right? Think about a person in a family who says, you know what, I decided I want to do this, or I want to make a change. Why would a family resist? Because the family knows the dynamic. They know where each person in the family fits, and they're all comfortable because that's been the way things work for the past 30 years. And an individual trying to change that or shake that up. So resistance can also come in the form of family or old friends or people that knew you when who don't want you to then emerge as a completely different being or do whatever it is that they're looking to do. Okay, next one, meeting with the mentor. Give me examples from Hollywood of mentors. I could say Obi-Wan Kenobi, even though I said I don't know Star Wars. Because him and Star born, that genre of... Ah, interesting, interesting. Okay, so what are the mentors? What is James Bond's mentor? All about Eve. Oh, now you guys are going to give me all the movies I don't know. I'm just going to have to shake my head to be polite. That L. Yes. A one that you know. Yes. The Wizard of Oz, Glenda, the Good Witch. Okay, perfect. The Good Witch, yes. Well, very often the mentor is sort of this, I'll give you a great example, okay? Mr. Miyagi. I'm sorry. Mr. Miyagi, I'm going to keep going back to my 80s movies that I grew up. The older, more, more, the Karate Kid. Karate Kid. I mean, this is so. That's why I said stars. Yeah, I'm going to give the example. Yeah. What? 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 What
Merlin for King Arthur. Think about any, any movie, you will have that mentor just as the hero is resistant or other people are resisting the call for the You will have that mentor who appears oftentimes out of nowhere, right? You don't know how, it's just sort of serendipity that the hero runs into this person or the person appears and yet it's almost as if the next one, which is the crossing the first threshold, could not happen without the appearance of that mentor, the one that is wise. And oftentimes it's because the mentor hands over, right? Whether it's the lightsaber, whether it's the, right, wax on, wax off. I'm gonna stick with my movie, no one's gonna know what I'm talking about. That it's oftentimes without, the mentor will often give over something, okay? It could be an object that enables the guy in the last fight scene to win. It could be a message. It could be some sort of hidden meaning that until the very, very end, the hero doesn't fully understand, but something about it enables him to cross that first threshold, okay? Now, we crossing- the Titans and the real coach who just passed away about a month ago. Oh, cool. Remember the Titans, there you go. Um, I can't do that without permission from Matan. It has to be the paper if he wants that. Um, okay, now oftentimes, and, and tell me what registers now, when they cross the first threshold, oftentimes the images that are depicted is being swallowed by a whale or a sea monster coming up. Right? Think about Yonah, who crosses that first threshold when he says, forget it, I'm the one that ran away from my god, and he takes the leap to say, throw me off, I don't want to kill all of you on my account, and then of course he's swallowed by this whale, right? Because it's om there's almost, it almost gives the impression that there's something um, almost sort of self-destructive about that leap, about that move, about crossing that threshold because you don't know what to wait. So there's all these different images that are conjured up when you cross, right? Oftentimes in the Hollywood movies, that person has to step off, right? In the Matrix, he has to step off the balcony of that building. There's always something where they have to take that leap because it really speaks to that which is so scary. Yeah? So far, everything you said comports with W. Miller. Oh, so David Hamelch is an amazing example. We're gonna, I mean, I use Yosef because we're a Bereshit, and it's not just David Hamelch. I mean, we're skipping over even Yehuda. Yehuda himself has his own hero's arc within the story of, of Yosef. Um, yes, it, one, and again, it's not about the person writing it or copying, it's, it's how we understand how people evolve. And by the way, there's never just one hero's arc, right? In, re in, in our stories, it's one, and then it ends, and then the story. In real life, it's just right, the cyclical, continual, constantly emerging as a new person in theory. Okay, what happens when they get to this new world? When Dorothy wakes up and she's in this colorful place, as opposed to the black and white Kansas, she starts, you start to meet new people that become allies. Oftentimes, the people that become your allies or your friends or your cohorts are the people that are, might be looking for the same thing. Okay? But one of the things that also happens is that sometimes the people that you think are your friends end up being the enemies, end up being the ones trying to subvert your efforts because they also don't want things, just like the people on that end didn't want the order shaken up, so the people in this world may not either. And so oftentimes, part of the sort of ups and downs, and we're going to see this with, I just need my eraser. Um, one of the things we're going to see in this hero's arc, and it's going to be so prominent, in the Yosef story, is that there are sort of dips and rises, right? Think about a Hollywood movie, right? So it intensifies. You don't have the most climactic showdown in the first scene when they get to the new world. First they're learning things, first they're trying to figure out who's who and learn the new world's rules of the <coughs> order. But then one of the things that's fascinating is that as it gets more intense, right, the dips get lower and the highs get higher. And that's exactly what's gonna happen with Yosef. Right? We're going to see that it gets more, the downs get more intense and the highs get more intense, but essentially they're trying to figure out and learn the new way. Okay? 
And then, of course, if you look down, you have the approach to the innermost cave. Okay? What's in the innermost cave? True self. Okay, so the treasure, which is which is the true self, or it could be love, or it could be a box, uh, right? But what's it always behind? It's never just in a cave. You never have to just get into the cave. What's it always? A hazard. Huh? A hazard. A hazard. Either the booby traps or a dragon that's breathing fire, which is one of the oldest right images, right? Because to get what you need to get to in the deepest, innermost recesses of the cave is this monster that's breathing fire, and you have to figure out if you, A, want to pass him, and then, if so, how to do that, okay? So the approach to the innermost cave is when the hero, where he has to sort of go all the way in and face that which is most terrifying in order to get what's behind it, okay? And then we have, if you look at your sheets, the ordeal, okay? The ordeal is the actual showdown, but it's never just one scene, right? As I mentioned, the ordeal is sort of facing those things that you fear over and over and over, right? <coughs> Until what? Until you lose the fear. Until you're able to find what? Until you conquer the fear. You can only get to what's behind the dragon if you conquer it. And so whatever the obstacle, excuse me, whatever the ordeal means, it may be facing people from the past. It may be facing addiction. It may be, right? There's a million manifestations of what the ordeal is. Again, in the Hollywood action movies, it's always that actual violent scene where, or the car chase, right? But it doesn't have to be that dramatic. The ordeal is whatever the hero is, right? Finally facing head on, okay? Um, and again, one of the things that happens is that there's, again, that cycle, that up and down, where it's not entirely clear if the hero's going to go or there's going to be a pullback. And oftentimes, it's because of the ambivalence of the hero himself. I think that the, you know, I think we attribute a lot of nasty associations to Yosef's behavior. He wanted them to suffer. I think a part of Yosef wasn't sure if he was ready to pass that dragon and find what was really underneath. Okay, the reward. What is the reward? What? Princess. Okay, it could be the princess. What else is it often? For example, the reward in in Wizard of Oz. I'm just going to keep going back to Returning it. Home. Returning home. It's all she wanted to do. Finding peace. Okay, <coughs> finding peace. I will say the reward is even more profound than just going home, even though that's the most important manifestation of it. The reward is whatever enables you to now bring back to the world that you left. Okay, so if you remember when she wakes up in bed, Dorothy, right, she wakes up and she says to those three men that she never saw, you were there and you were there too. It's as if the Tin Man, the Lion, the, the Scarecrow were all people in her life. Okay, one of the things that marks a successful journey of a hero is not if it, right, or what does, let's, let's say this, what distinguishes a selfish hero from a true hero, okay, is if the hero is able to bring back the reward to his old life, Okay, and then never sort of transform the old world. Okay, so for and, and by the way, in books and movies, if we can't ever look at the world the same way, then the author did a really good job, right? Because then we can no longer look at what we saw yesterday through the same lens. It's almost as if, if you use the example, right, of a of a camera lens. So you're looking through a regular lens, and then if you put another different type of lens on top of it, you see everything differently. That's the reward of the hero, their ability to now transform <coughs> what was. Yeah? Yes. Is, is this what you're talking is similar to the Odyssey? Probably. The <laughs> 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 Yeah. 
<laughs> I did read it in ninth grade, I promise. <laughs> hundred percent a hundred percent and again it's not one of the things one of the reasons that this you know the, it's fascinating to look at the at sort Could of the, the Odyssey that she was using the Odyssey as an example also right that maturity coming home a changed person is the ultimate reward okay but again one of the, and I'm glad you mentioned that because one of the things that we're gonna see and what's so fascinating is that even though they all follow essentially the same pattern it man it can manifest in millions of different ways for each hero it's a different journey a different reward a different change yeah I think when you're talking about uh, the Wizard of Oz it was a matter of each one coming up with a self-esteem Correct, or that which they felt they were lacking. Exactly. That which they thought they were, oh, by the way, very key <laughs> is that oftentimes the reward that the hero comes back with, we realize they had, right, that's why Wizard of Oz, I keep going back to because it's such a perfect, they realize they had it inside of them all the time, right? And Yosef, that's going to be really, really profound, okay? Yeah. Oh, wait, don't hold both Yosef, hold you, no spoilers. We're going to get there in 10 seconds. Okay, by the way, okay, the road back is also really, really important. The road back, and I'll give you an example. It's not always so easy. If we argue, go back to when we talked about um, Yaakov as the trickster. So Yaakov faces Laban, and he has that showdown where Rachel hides the truck in, and he stands and he declares, I am not, in fact, a liar. I am not a trickster. And it's a really important moment. He can't actually go back and face, if you want to argue facing Lavan was one of the inner caves, facing Asav was probably the ordeal, right? But in order to face it, who did he have to first encounter? The Ish, right? He had to sort of own, right? Yes, you, you were Yaakov, now you are Yisrael, you always had it in you, now I am declaring it. So it's all part, that process is sort of always there. Um, okay, resurrection is, I think, less relevant to our, to our story itself, but resurrection, again, can manifest in a million different ways. If you're looking at that final fight scene and the hero looks like he's just been shot and you think he's dead, and then somehow he's able to lift the gun and shoot that, that's the resurrection is, even in that last moment, when the hero thinks he can't fully finish the process, and then somehow he finds the inner strength to finish it off, to fight that final demon, or to get rid of that final nemesis, whatever it is, however it's however it personifies. Um, okay, and then of course it's the elixir. Okay, to go return with the elixir means everything the hero learns on his journey, he now brings back and transforms, right, how everyone else, everything that he learned, he is now able to share that elixir with the world. He is now able to share his newfound perceptions and allow, every, invite everyone else into that world. Okay, and again, it doesn't necessarily have to be an actual change of place. It can be a transformed world, even if geographically you haven't moved, okay? So these are the overall, okay, 12 steps. None, it doesn't always have to be linear. It doesn't always have to follow exactly. You can have something where you're missing step 11 or missing step 10. It's not the point. The point is watching how the hero emerges. So now let's go into Breshit, Paraklamid Zion, chapter 37, and let's watch Yaakov's, uh, excuse me, Yosef's arc. Okay, now I'm just going to start reading and you scream when you think we're hitting a. Paraklam and Zion Pasuk Aleph, first one. By Yishiv Yaakov, the Eretz Migurei Aviv, the Eretz Kinaan. Ela told Dot. Oh, by the way, if anyone wants Joseph Campbell's, it's called A Hero with a Thousand Faces. It's probably his most famous book on this whole. And he goes through lots of examples from mythology, from movies, from. Um, it's a fascinating, fascinating book, A Hero with a Thousand Faces. 
אלה תולדות יעקב, יוסף בן שבע עשרה שנה, היה רואה את אחיו בצום. והוא נער את בני בלהה ואת בני זלפה. By the way, what's the, the who נער is such a mistranslated phrase. What does it mean? נער is used here as a verb, right? So, what? So it's not that he grew, so sometimes we assume it's that he was growing up with them. Nar is also, right, when we think about him, Nar can be used as like a young child or a lad or someone who's, right, sometimes we say when, he's, when a baby is weaned, he becomes a Nar. Nar also means to serve someone, right? So you'll have kings and they have their Nar and then their Noseke Lav on the other side. You have it in Shmuel, you have it in Breshit, right? In Breshit, after Abraham goes out to fight, when he asks for reward, he says, just give the reward to my Nearim. Right, the people that came out that were my essentially my servants or my 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 hand. What are they? Not hand men. I don't know if that's the right term. But, Body man. Huh? Body man. Yeah, is that it? Yeah, that's the president's now. Ah, okay. Body man. So the na'ar means what? And it makes perfect sense in context. Yaakov was favoring him and showing him how much he loved him. So when Yaakov's not there, and it's just the dynamic that's being developed between the brothers, serving his brothers. he had to serve not just any of them. He had to serve the sons of the Shvachot. Okay, so you see this perfectly imbalanced relationship where Yaakov showers love on him because he's the last, right, because he's the son of his beloved that's no longer around. And the, on the flip side, the brothers make sure he knows his place. They compensate for the showering of the love of Yaakov. The Israel Ahadat Yosef Nikovanav, Kibenz Kunim Hulo, Veasalok Tonet Pasim, also a mistranslated word. It may, it's possible Pasim is from the colors. It's also possible Pasim, like for example, in the story of Amnon and Tamar. She also, it's, it's just that if you were royal or if you were, um, it was sort of a show of. Um, esteem if you had a jacket that had longer sleeves, so pas meaning that it got down to the um, to the wrist, not not that you were, not that it was multicolored. Okay, so now again, guys, you're not screaming out. That's the ordinary world. Thank you. Ordinary world. Again, it's not ideal. But everyone knows, right? We know the game. We know the rules of this world. Yaakov loves him more. He favors him. The brothers hate him that much more. And then what happens? Verse 5. Okay, so now, again, there's going to be pushback. In this one scene, we have really both of the next two elements, right? Right? He has dreams of grandeur. He has dreams of, again, we don't want to say lording it over his brothers, but certainly of emerging as the leader. His brothers were jealous of him. So here in this one you have two. You have the call to adventure and, and the refusal. He has this call to adventure. He has this halom. That sort of gives the sense that there's something else out there that he can aspire to. And his family, his brothers, and his father say, what the heck are you talking about? 
right? They're saying, no, 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 leave things be. Yeah. So in this sense, the refusal to recall is from his family, Correct. not from inside Listen, I think, I think, you know, if we're going to be realistic, they, there's no way, right, in real human beings, how do we ever distinguish between what my parents told me I'm capable of or what, right? It's, it's always going to be, in some, in some times, it's going to be more obvious, right? The father is saying, you can never do that, or don't do that, it will hurt someone. Right here, it's probably a combination, as as usually, right? It's probably a combination of both. But certainly, the pushback from not just his brothers but his father also, right? Is that's that refusal? That's that initial. He doesn't just have a dream and run off and try to make it big, okay? <laughs> Now that's a really important word. It's very symbolic in Tanakh. Who says he named? Avram. Avram says it, for example, when he's going to do Akidat Yitzchak, which, by the way, if you want to look at this, that through this lens, go right ahead. You can have a party. There's, right, Kinein doesn't just mean okay, right? It's I'm ready. I'm ready for a call. I am ready for a challenge. I am ready for the next stage. So even though it seems like this sort of innocuous conversation where he's saying, go check on your brothers, and he's, but there's something the Tanakh is cluing us in, sort of in through the language that it's employing, right, and invoking other episodes where something major is about to happen, that this is more than just, hmm, I'm going to go out and check where they are. Um, and now, again, all of this can be understood on the really superficial, just check out how they're doing. But there, it's very possible that something so much deeper is being communicated between father and son. And now, who does Yosef meet? By the way, Chazal say who is Rashi, for example. Hamalach Gabriel. Right, because even Chazal, whether or not they had these 12 steps as identified by Joseph Campbell, there's this intuitive sense that when you meet this mysterious messenger who just happens to be wandering in the field, that there's something supernatural about it. There's something that's more than just correct. <coughs> okay, again, very heavy language. Right, he doesn't say what are you looking for. Right? Matzivakesh can mean many things. Vayomer etachai anochi mevakesh. Hagida nali efohein ro'im. So much is being exchanged. Yeah? Is it possible because he realizes a little bit that his father has infantilized him? Uh, and oh, that's uh, interesting. That he, the idea of what he wants is to be able to reach the goal that he gets. Uh, I would say 100%. I'm going to, I mean, we're going to, I'm jumping ahead to the end. The end of Yosef is not him ruling over the brothers. Can you repeat what yes. you is there some, oh, Sorry, is there something maybe that Yosef, because his father infantilized him and created this unfair dynamic, meaning set him up at a disadvantage in terms of how he's going to be accepted by his brothers, is it possible that going out to the feet, that going out, what he was looking for was to be accepted? And in the end, again, what's really, we imagine that everything ends in the end of him ruling over his brothers. Yosef rules over Egypt. <coughs> Yehuda is the leader of his brothers. Okay? At the end of the day, what Yosef gets, the reward, is to be reunited with them, to be reunited without all of the hatred and the discord and the resentment and everything else. Exactly. Okay. Uh, where was I? Pasuk Yudzayin. Vayomer Ha'ish. 
And again, we could picture if they were to make a movie. By the way, the reason Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat was, is because it's such a perfect right, hero's art. But we imagine this old man pointing the way. But, by the way, I don't, we're not getting into a discussion just because we're not focusing on the family dynamics here. Um, I think it's very, very easy. I think the Yosef story in particular is one of the hardest stories for people to make peace with because they don't like Ruvain, they don't like Yosef, they don't. And I think it's very easy to dislike, right? You don't like the kid that's paddle-tailing on his brothers. You don't like, but if we think about how much trauma they inherited just by virtue of being the children that they were, Right, if you go back to when Ruben brings the Dudaim to his mother, and we talked about how heartbreaking that is. Well, now fast forward to when he says to Yaakov, all right, if we can't bring Binyamin back, I'll give you, you can kill my two sons. It sounds crazy, but what you hear in Ruben's voice, and Ruben, by the way, is the failed hero in many ways, but what you hear in his voice is an acceptance as a grown man that no matter what he does, his father will never love him and his children the way he loves the children of Rachel, and he did nothing to deserve that, right? And on the flip side, Yosef did nothing to deserve the unfair dynamic that was created. He didn't do anything, right? So again, as much as it's easy to dislike all of them, we have to remember they came into this, and I think that's why the Tanakh spent so much time on naming of the children. The naming of the children provides us with the backstory to understand the dysfunction, and it's really, really heartbreaking, but... Okay, that's a tangent. Bata, pasuk yutet, vayomru ish elachav. Hini ba'al hakalo mos halazeba. Ve'atalachu v'nahargeyu v'nashlichayu v'achad haborot. Ve'amarnu chayara a'achalatu v'nir'eh ma'yihiyu chalomotav. Right, there's that recurrence of the resistance. Okay, and again, by the way, we have... Also, the allies turning into enemies. Not yet. We're not even there yet. He's still in his old world, where the brothers are trying to hold him back from whatever great things he imagines for himself. Right now, again, if we were to read into this, right, if they weren't a little bit nervous, then they wouldn't really care. The fact that they're throwing him into a pit means that perhaps something in his dreams or something about his aspirations is making them uncomfortable. Pasuk. Um, and again, Ruben really does have good intentions. He's just not able, I think, to, to sort of cross that threshold. He doesn't want to return him to them. He's not interested in being united or uniting all the brothers. And if we talk about what Ruben's failure ultimately is, it's his inability to unite the brothers. He wants to save Yosef's life to bring him back to his father. Okay? He also doesn't say Avina. What? He also doesn't say Avina. Ah, that's interesting. That's really interesting. <coughs> that's interesting. Meaning he even disassociated a little bit. Yeah, he oh, does. That's, I, like that. I like that. I like that a lot. Okay. But he cut your because it's all of their fathers. But he cut your bayou say that you say that Kutantosh at Tonit of Pasima share love. But he cut who by a shiko to a bore of a bore eight angle mine. By Shrubeko left and by his winning hand by your Uvihine or Hatishman and Bami Gala with Malahemus Oatnikot. And now one of the things that happens, and again, 
and he said they don't always cross, cross the threshold intentionally. Yosef is going to cross a threshold whether he wants to or not. The threshold is going to be crossed right passively in this case. And he's going to, they say, let's sell him to the Yishmeilim and the Mijanim. And of course, Yehuda has the idea, right? And there it's Achinu. Right? Why should we kill? So the hints of him being a brother or acting brotherly are already there. He hasn't yet taken it to where it really needs to go. But there's a difference between Reuven's concerns and Yehuda's concerns. And he goes, and of course, as we all know, they sell him. And I'm just going to jump down to the Pasuk to Lamed Vav 36. Sar HaTavachim. And just jump, skip over the Tamar Parak to Parak Lamutet 39. So Dorothy now just woke up in a completely different, unrecognizable universe. That's where Yosef finds himself. Okay, he has no idea where he is. He does not know one person. And what he, to be successful, what he's going to have to be able to do is learn the rules of this new world and find allies and be able to weed out the enemies that are going to try to impede his growth. Okay, that's what everyone is going to, that's what they're essentially going to have to do. Okay, so let's jump down to, now you tell me what happens. I think Parak Lamitet is primarily um, or essentially really where we see Lamitet men, we're not going to, obviously we're not going to be able to read through all of the Prakim inside. What happens in Parak Lamitet? That's such a perfect example of learning the terrain and learning the who your friends are and who your enemies are. Yeah, Potiphar is his friend. Okay, Potiphar is his friend. Potiphar gives him this elevated status within his household, but then, but then Ashik Potiphar sets him up, becomes his enemy, and he ends up, right, unknown again. How could he have possibly known that she was going to try to do this to him? It doesn't matter. That's part of the learning curve that they all go through in this new world. So then he ends up in another boar, right? Again, remember this. There's always he was in the boar, and then he climbs up, and now this boar, it's really not accurate, it should be, right? This boar is even worse. Because here, right here, at least he's sold into slavery. This boar, you could stay there for the rest of your life and rot in one of those ancient Egyptian prisons, okay? Now, um, one of the things that we are privy to, and this is just a tiny little, um, it's almost like the narrator is giving us, I think, um, hints as to what the end game is. Because look at Pasuk Bet in that paragraph. It says, What are we already giving hints of? Well, a good ending? The divine covenant. Okay, that's a huge, huge, huge piece, and we're going to see that's really going to what it's going to all be about. Okay, and then again, we're skipping over a lot, but so what do you notice? Yeah. Well, I just have a question. So uh, when it, it talks about you know, okay, the God was with him and all that. So now is is God his mentor? Is, has God become? No, 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 not yet, not yet. No, I don't think God. No, because Hashem never really communicates. Other than the dreams, Hashem doesn't really communicate so does at all. So does he have a mentor? Who's the, the mentor? The mentor. That's what so I was. Yeah, yeah, the Ish was the mentor. The the older man. Ish. The man who enabled him to cross that threshold. Ah, okay, but that but that but that, that was just a, like a, a one-time thing. The right. Mentor. 
Yes, yeah, so listen, again, it manifests differently in all. Huh? I mean, he has also said how much it becomes his nature. So, okay, so excellent. So what happens in jail, right, is another on the one, right, he meets these two people. Now, why is it fascinating that in jail he's interpreting dreams? What's part of the process, part of the ordeal is what? Learning how to use his talents to... Believing that what was latent in you all this time is actually real. Right, because when he used it the first time, the father, right, his father and mother was like, yeah, okay, good dream interpretation. That makes no sense because your mom's not even here anymore, right? But then he's in jail, and, and what happens? Little by little, he realizes maybe it's not silly. Maybe what I believed about myself is, in fact, something that I can tap into. And when he interprets those two dreams of the Sarah Mashkim and the Sarah Ophim accurately, right, so there's that, again, we're getting towards, right, he's getting closer and closer into the dragon. It's only when he realizes or believes that about himself that he could, yeah. Because it's, they also said to doctors, you're not supposed to diagnose yourself. And he was able to explain <clears throat> the other people's dreams, but right. he had misinterpreted his own because um, it's filtered through a different sort of eye. That for sure. And then his, and, and his whole, um, for sure his possible. With, with Paro was also for someone else's dream. Listen, it's very, very, very possible, but I think even if we're thinking less technically, did it actually fully come true, did it manifest? I think the point is, that piece of him that was that he wanted to believe in, right? If we're looking at it just based on this like model, that piece of him he wanted to believe in, there was pushback, there was resistance to it, but then over the being in different pits enables him Right to discover that it's actually something that's been there all along, and then of course he's going to use it with power. By the way, we have another case of the friends and allies issue. What happens? He was The Sar Hamashkim is supposed to remember him, but then what happens? He totally forgets it. But then, and again, think of any great scene. Right, the friend kind of leaves and says, "Forget it. I'm out. This is too intense for me." But then, in that really important scene when he's outnumbered, all of a sudden, who comes back? The friend that left him all. And then, of course, later on, when Yatwen just jumped, for example, to Parak Mem Aleph, right? Yoparo has this dream and jumps to Pasuk Tet. Who comes in in that critical? This dream could have had nothing to do with Yosef. And he brings Yosef back into the picture. It's that scene where the hero is outnumbered, facing the enemy because Yosef is still in the pit, and the friends come in in the background and they're all armed. Yeah. Getting back to the to the you know the part where he's in jail and he interprets his dreams. He still doesn't believe in himself. Well, he believes in himself, but he attributes it to Hashem. Um, so I don't know that the two are, I think, if anything, right, one of the things we're going to see is that the two are intrinsically connected, right? It's not I believe in myself because I'm awesome. It's I believe that I am manifesting what God's plan is. That's exactly what he's going to say to the brothers. That's what the elixir ultimately is. Right? He's, that, that's, so wait, uh, we're going to hold it. We're going to get back. You're, you're right. That's exactly, exactly true. But the Torah has a very different concept of believing in yourself. Right? That's what every leader in Tanakh that's chosen, right? They're not chosen because of their inherent abilities. David is not chosen to fight Goliath because he's strong. He <coughs> fights Goliath because he believes he is fighting God's battle. Right? That's the unique piece of, the, of our hero's journey, I think. Yeah. But he has the protection of God, which you can see. And I think that's something that you see, at least in the ancient Correct. And, Correct. And he has the protection. So he is always covered by that. 
100% but protection of the gods because they believe in this hero versus what Yosef is going to say at the end. Tell me if I'm wrong, but I think there's something uniquely, I think this divine causality piece that Yosef is going to articulate at the end is, is what the story is ultimately all about. It's not just the gods protecting him. Right? That's often in mythology. You have this right being that's immune to the efforts of the other gods to undermine his journey. Here there's something else, I think. I think, I think there's an awareness of working in tandem with God and God's overall plan. That's something unique, I think. Um, okay, we're going to get to it. We're jumping ahead. Okay, the ordeal. Okay, what happens? Go to, essentially, the ordeal begins where? You tell me. What is the ordeal? What is the dragon? So he got that. That's another one of these things. What's the real ordeal? He wasn't scared of the brothers. He wasn't scared of Paro. And the brothers come back. Facing the brothers. The brothers are the dragon. Right? Reuniting with that person from your past. And it's what's fascinating, right? Go to Pasuk. Go to Parak Membet. What happened to the approach to the Nemo's caves? Where were you? Um, I think that's here. I think that's now. I think the approach to the innermost cave, it's all leading. The ordeal is going to be when he says, right? but, but it's going to be a long-winded approach because Yosef is going to be hesitant. right? I don't think he's trying, again, it's possible he's just trying to be hurt, hurt, you know, hurtful and mean. But I think there's also, Yosef is not sure if he wants to actually face it. He doesn't know what stands behind the dragon. Yeah. And I think he's also going through a process where to enable the brothers to also okay. go Excellent, there. excellent, excellent. He doesn't officially, so, okay, so we're jumping ahead. We're going to get to it. Excellent, right? To enable the brothers to come to their place. Yeah. And the approach to the innermost cave, maybe alert something all is finding out whether his father's still alive. Uh, oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. Why? <laughs> Because it's something that weighs heavy on his heart. Oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. Meaning the first step, and if he let his is. father know that he's still alive. That's interesting. Right, right. That's very interesting. Listen, again, I think there's a lot of, there's room for an interpretation in terms of what the exact, and I don't think we have to pin it down either to what, it's a process, right? When we put it on a chart, it looks like there's one scene, and in Hollywood, there's one scene. In real life, it's never just one scene, right? It's an accumulation of lots of little scenes that end up being that thing that pushes you over. Okay, I'm gonna, I just, I'm gonna take your question in two minutes. Let me just, I just want to make because we have a lot of more steps to get there, and I promise I'll take it. And if I don't, I promise right after time. Parakmenbet 42. Okay. But yeah, so you, Yaakov realizes that there's a shepherd. He realizes his children are hungry. And now jump to verse six. Okay, this is that I think the approach that we're talking about. Uh, chapter 42, verse six. Menbet. Okay, he now sees the dragon and his tail is wagging. He recognizes them. Right, there's that play on words. We have it in the Gilad roots, we have it, right? He appears as a stranger to them, like a nofriyah. But it's more than that. Okay, this is the approach that we're talking about. He recognizes them. That's just what he sees. What does that mean? He, but it's he more than, right, there's the situation 
in the light of those Correct, and I would even say the notion of zikaron, yeah. And he's starting to actualize himself that he actually had those dreams and they mean something. Correct, right? I think zikaron is more than just, oh, remember what happened. Zikaron implies action that follows, right? We remember Yitziat Mitzrayim by going through the ritual because we realize that Yitziat Mitzrayim happens all the time over and over and over again, right? Zikaron is not remember what happened once. It's remember what keeps repeating itself. Remember what is now real and right in front of me. And so again, here you see this push and pull. He's not ready for this. He's not ready to necessarily face him. He remembers the dream. And so he's pushed and he starts pushing back at them. Okay? And what we have here going back and forth for the next couple of prakim is that getting closer and closer and closer to the dragon. But he doesn't just leap right into it. Right? It takes a little while. If you jump in, I'm just going to point out a couple of highlights. Okay? Go to Perak Mem Gimel, Pasuk Chapei, the next Perak. Okay, now if you remember, they have to go back to Yaakov, inter intermediary. They go back to Yaakov without Shimon, right? He's left in jail, probably because Yosef wants to separate Shimon and Levi, because when they're together, bad things happen. So Shimon is left in jail. They have to go back and convince Yaakov to send Binyamin down. And of course, again, we don't have the time to, dwell, to sort of delve into it, but Yehuda is the only one that's able to do that. Okay, and in doing so, what is Yehuda basically able to communicate to Yaakov? That we need all 12, or 11 in his mind. You need everyone, right? It's not about, it's very different than it was in the generations until now. Now things have shifted. Until now, you remove one and you have one chosen one. But now we're transforming to a nation. And when they are a nation, there's no such thing as leaving one out. Okay? So jump to Perak Mem Gimel, Pasuk Chafhei, for example. And it says, Vayachinu et amincha ad bo, sorry, Pasuk Chafdalen, verse 24. Vayadeha ish et anashin beita Yosef. Right? So you just, right, Rukh, you just mentioned that there was, that he was getting the brothers ready. It's almost like he's setting up the same scenario again. That's why Chazal called this Chuvag Murat, right? Chuvag Murat is being in the same position and making a different decision. Yosef is almost setting it up again. He has them, right, by Yitim Mayim, by your Chatzurad Lehem. So he's the quintessential in the mindset we've spoken about hospitality in the family of Abraham. By Yitim Mispol Lecham Orehem. And then it goes on. By Yachinu Etamincha Adbo Yosef Atzorayim Kishamu Kisham Yoku Lechem. By Yavo Yosef Habayta by Yaviyu. So now he sets up another scenario where the brothers are sitting around eating and he's going to walk in and he's going to have to sort of see what happens. I'm going to jump down again to Pasuk Lamid. Okay, and look what happens. A pasuk starts with Chavtet. Vayisa inav vayarat binyamin achiv ben imo vayomer hazeh kichem hakaton asher martam elai vayomer elokim yachnecha bni vayimaher Yosef ki nichmeru rachamav el achiv vayivakesh yukot vayavo hachadra vayef shama. He sees this brother and he he has to run. He hides behind the door, but he's not ready yet. Right? He's not ready yet to reveal himself to them. And I think part of it is right, this understanding that what he wants, like you mentioned before, is not just to rule over them. He bowed down to them. That wasn't sufficient. He wants there to be brotherliness. And we're going to see why this is all so important to end Breshi with. Um, he thought what he wanted. Oh, sorry, wait one second. Sorry, what? 
what he thought he wanted was to be reunited with his brother Benjamin because that was his brother, but then realizes that's not enough. Correct, correct. And I and I'll, I'll say, I think it's not just that he realizes that's not enough. I'll, let's go go to pasuk. I think the turning point for Yosef is in the next parak, parak Memdalid. Okay, Yosef doesn't break down. With, oh, sorry, I interrupted you. What were you saying? I'm saying that he, with all of this with the brothers, he never makes has made one attempt in all of the years to, to see about his father, which he had every. Yeah, no, 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 I don't know. Everyone says that. I think I think getting you know couriers back and forth and no, a slave no, in Egypt was harder. Than, thing no. in those days. It was not simple at all. It's possible. Listen, I don't know. I, I think no, it might have been more challenging than uh, no. than we imagine, especially we have to realize we really didn't have a lot of so close. Let me just say one thing. He realized that he Then you're going to be angry at them for meaning That's afterwards. That's angry, interesting. Angry at who? At the father. Thank you. That's interesting. By the way, we have a noted author in the room here who want to read more of her brilliant insights. Okay, Parakamendalid, I'm going to jump down to what is the turning point. When does Yosef realize? Because he's had lots of opportunity. He realizes his father is alive. He sees Binyamin and he can't even not cry, but he, he does it in a separate room. Okay, what changes Yosef is Perak Mem Dalid, Pasuk Yud Dalid. Okay? Yeah. Correct. Okay, Yehuda, Yosef says, sorry, but I'm going to have to keep in Yamin because we found this stolen goblet in his, in his sack. Pasuk Yud Dalid. Vayabo Yehuda, ve'echav beta Yosef. Vehuodenu sham, vayiplu lefanav arza. But that's not what he wanted. Well, you didn't think I was going to be able to figure out magically who did this? Okay, this is the second time in his life that Yehuda has fessed up to a mistake that he made. That is why he becomes the father of Israel. We will be your slaves. And Yosef isn't ready. He says, nope, sorry, only the one that I found it. And he's reliving now through their eyes what this episode was. You asked if we had a father, you asked if we had a brother, we did everything you said, and he jumps to. Um, mm -mm -mm. I'm going to just jump down a little bit too because we're running out of time. To Pasuk Lamed. I cannot go back without him. We will kill our father if we come back without him. 
Im lo avienu ilecha vechatati la vi kol hayamim. Right? I cannot, ve'ata, yeshevna avdecha, tachat hanar, take me instead. Eved la I am giving you my life, what you would have said. He will be his slave till he dies. Ve'hanar ya'al im echad. Right? And again, to pull him out of the pit, he will go back. Ki ech ele el avi ve'hanar inenu, iti Okay, go back. This is the end of Breshit. Why? Why does Sefer Breshit end with the reunification of the children? And again, I'm going to jump to the next. You're going to answer in a second. Perak Memhei is, of course, the reward. Velo yachol Yosef lihitapek lechol hanitzavimalav. He couldn't. Yosef's speech is what enabled him. That was, right, the fighting of that ultimate, that last battle, that was Yosef's speech to him. And then, of course, there's a reunion, and they hug, and he cries on Binyamin's shoulders. And finally, not after all these prakim, but finally, since the beginning of Bereshit, the most important question has been answered. What is the most, we spoke about rhetorical questions in Tanakh at the very beginning of the semester. We said, as soon as humanity has Bechirachopshit, as soon as they have Das Tovara, as soon as they as soon as they sort of manifest the natural proclivity for intelligence and for the ability to make decisions, which comes with all of the wonderful things humanity is capable of, and all of the negative things, the very first scene after coming out of Ganeden is Kain and Hevel. Okay, Kain brings a korban and Hashem doesn't accept it, and Hevel brings a korban and Hashem does accept it, and so he kill and Hashem says to Kain. Right, you shouldn't really do that. Right, what happened called and Kain asks the question that sets off the entire Sefer Breshit. What's his question? Hashomer achi anochi, and then we watch the entire Breshit unfold until Yehuda finally answers the question. What's the answer? Yes. Okay, but Yosef is the one. Yosef's dreams, Yosef's ordeal, Yosef in the pit. Yosef is the one that enabled. And again, like you mentioned, the back and the forth is what enables both sides to realize, yes, right? That's what it comes down to. And what's interesting, by the way, again, Yosef is not the leader of the brothers. Yehuda is the leader of the brothers. Yosef is leading Mitzrayim. The head, the figurehead of the brothers is Vayigashe Lav Yehuda, okay? Yehuda is the one that understood that for the brothers to exist, it has nothing to do with who's the best and who's the worst and who loves and who, it's to exist, you need to exist all together as one. And that is really, I think, ultimately, why he is the one um, that becomes the brothers. I will read. Well, you tell me, what is the elixir? And again, we're skipping over a lot of the beautiful, right, where he saves them again, and there's, but we're just out of time. What is the elixir? How is the world, because a successful hero doesn't just change as an individual. He's a, he's, then he'd just be a good person who went through a change. He's a hero because he enables the world to change. He prepares the world for redemption because he's Mashiach, can you say? Ah, okay, so for sure we could go in the, you know, in the messianic route. But let's stick with just, we're just in Breshit now, yeah? He got Yosef to admit who he was. 
That was more than that, more than that, more than that. That's nice, but that doesn't change the world. What changes the world? He brought the whole family. Also, also, but that's just that's just nice for Yaakov's family. What changes? We now have to be able to close very sheet and see the world differently. That's a successful hero. And they all mourn this Yaakov together. Ah, okay. So also, right? So we see it sort of playing out. Jump to Parak Nun. Right after what you said. Also, that it's the hand of God. Ah, okay, there we go. The elixir is as follows. The brothers are nervous because Yaakov just died. So maybe Yosef was just biding his time not to offend his father. And now that Yaakov is dead, he's going to avenge all of the years that he had to spend suffering. And the following is what Yosef says when his brothers are terrified that now the time has come for them, right, for payback. What we are in par- chapter Parak Nun, chapter 50, Pasuk Tetva. What's the resurrection message? Oh, just re-meeting. Okay, wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. Right? Karma is about to hit. Totomru Yosef. So their, their attempt to sort of keep Yosef's anger and, and, and resent everything, right, at bay, is to say, our father said to please be nice to us. That was his dying wish. And they're trying to preempt it by declaring that they will be a slave. By Yomer Alehem, this is the elixir. Okay, we now end very sheet, understanding how Hashem works in the world differently. By Yomer Alehem Yosef, Al Tirau Ki Hatafat Elokimani. Right, I am not. Right, I interpret the dreams, which is what he said way back in prison, because God gives me that ability. But Atem Chashav Tem Alai what is the elixir? He said that before, right? He said it in a li- he said before he came not- down to save Mitzrayim, but that's different. What is he saying? I mean, it's not different. It's sort of a correct. Meaning every, the push and the pull and the back and the forth, none of us are ultimately, right, in control. We need to try to do the best in our own individual lives, but there's a bigger picture that none of us are privy to, right? In Yosef's case, he was lucky enough to be able to have the hindsight. For the most part, none of us will, but it doesn't matter because now we can look at the world with this elixir on the lens, right? We do our best in our own personal lives. We try to actualize any potential that we have, but ultimately, Someone else is pulling the strings of all of the bigger pictures that are going around. And that ultimately, I think, is how Sefer Breshit ends, with this understanding that for it to be a nation, you don't get to kick one out just because you don't like them or just because they don't fit with your ideal, but this understanding that there's this big picture. I'll end with one final thought. Um, one of the things that's most interesting that we don't actually see is a physical return of Yosef to the land of Israel. Okay, and that's going to lead us into our next topic, because if you remember, we said that all of Breshit is about the metaphors, right? The archetypes. Avram is the archetype for A, and Yitzhak is the archetype for B, and Yaakov. And ultimately, what we're going to see now is the transition 
from the archetypes into the nation. We're not going Yosef himself never goes back, but the nation is going to return. And as a nation, we're going to have our own hero's arc and how we're going to be able to do that. So we're going to begin with, with Shemot next week. We are transitioning to a nation. The answer is yes, and that basically wraps up sacred retreat. And we're going to move next week to the national story. Wow. Have a great week.